This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Investors Roundtable. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And we have a pretty epic episode this week. We're talking about the mindset, the criteria, just what it takes to not only find and be a long-term, not, not just long-term, an ultra-long-term investor, you know, holding those companies for 10, 15, 20 plus years, in some cases, 30 years. I think Adrian will be talking about one of those stories, but uh, we're excited to have you all here and especially our panelists today. We've got Stephen Keel from Arquitos Capital, Adrian Day from Adrian Day Asset Management, Jason Hirschman, Hudson 215 Capital. Gentlemen, thank you all for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Happy to be here. It was a pleasure. Great to have you guys. So look, we were inspired. Uh, this, this episode was actually inspired by the episode that we did last week with, uh, with Steve, who was on there, as well as Matt Peterson talking about the recent Berkshire letter. And just this idea of, of you know, Matt gave a, a great presentation without actually doing a formal presentation on holding Berkshire for many, many years and, and the long-term benefits of compounding and all that. So you know, I figured I'd start this conversation. Let's pick it up with Steve first and to kind of give some of his thoughts on what it means to be this kind of investor. I think we should start with the mentality and then we'll get into the criteria. So start with this. Absolutely. Well, look, the best companies in the world are the ones that have tremendous internal reinvestment opportunities, right? And so sometimes that's in a particular industry where there might be some sort of monopoly or oligopoly. You know, look at like a MasterCard, Visa, American Express, something like that. You can own those things literally for decades. If you would have bought MasterCard at their uh, IPO, I believe it was 1996, you know, you'd be printing 25% a year. Um, I used to actually advise a fund that uh, started in 1982, and they bought a company called Balcom, which was a specialty, it is a specialty uh, chemical company, and then it's expanded into other things. And uh, I think they bought it probably 1984, 1985, and still hold it today. And for that fund, it was essentially, it was the number one uh, annual performer, Balcom was, if you look back during that time period uh, of at least a certain size. It was printing 30% a year, you know, for 35 years. So if you can find a company like that, that's the best investment in the world. And you really, you can take it easy. You know, you're just monitoring. It's great for tax purposes. Uh, you're, you're not getting realized gains. And uh, it's, you get to be so familiar and comfortable with the business and the management and what their mindset is. If you can find a, a, one or a couple investments like that, it sure beats trying to find a needle in a haystack and turning over all these rocks year over year over year. So look, I think everyone's mindset should be that. Uh, and then the question is, you know, you want to, have to be willing to hold it for a long, long time. And then the question is, if something runs up or gets way too overvalued, you can trade around it, I suppose. But, you know, when you're in this business and you're really trying to maximize after tax uh, returns, uh, those are those are the areas of focus that are, are going to be the best for your investors and yourself. 
Agreed. Uh, that's a good way to kick it off. I mean, Adrian, what are your thoughts on, you know, your, your first take on wanting to hold a company and try yeah, and just so it's, it's like you have to try it in some respects right you know i think i think to a large extent um you know there is a psychological uh, component to this and to a large extent you know a lot of young people don't seem to have the patience because the world moves so quickly you know twitters and all that kind of stuff i mean when i first got into the business we used to write letters which the post office actually delivered, believe it or not. And you would write a letter to someone and you know, three, four, five weeks later, you would get a reply and you would deal with a reply. And unless you were gonna to talk to him on the phone, you know, this sort of process might take months and you were just used to that kind of thing. And I think, unfortunately, these days, everything's moving so quickly. You know, we don't even have to talk about GameStop, but people are looking for instant gratification in so many, in so many parts of the world, so in so many parts of their lives. So there is a mindset to it. And I think, you know, discipline is incredibly important, but also, you know, patience. You have to, you just have to be patient and, um, you know, know that if you hold someone for 30 years, it's not going to go up every day, right? Yeah, no, it's... it's Sorry, yeah. Andrew, I, I apologize. Well, no, I, I, fin I think I finished your question. I mean, obviously yeah. there's a lot more to say, but I finished your question. Yeah, well, no, because it's like this idea of, especially with the stock market, I, I did an interview on, uh, I think it was on Tuesday with, with Caitlin Cook that we're going to be putting out uh, next week, where we were talking about this mindset of kind of a Gen Z investor, where, you know, it, it's traditionally when, when you think about the stock market, when it trickles down to the lay investor, it's sometimes seen as this get rich quick scheme or like there's so many people that have gotten rich quick as a result of their strategies that they're imploring you know so it's almost like there's the get rich quick scheme and then it's like us here being like no hold it for 10 15 20 years it's a, you know and, <laughs> and you're gonna do great hey, <laughs> you know? buy five stocks in your entire life as a punch card do that yeah <laughs> Good luck with do, that. yeah do that <laughs> and then and then uh you know that's it that's all you have to do you know versus well like what you know what so, though I mean, to Adrian's point, um, Adrian, you have a couple, you maybe two years on me, three years on me. But when I was a kid, you know, I, I would look at the stock on, a, on Sunday morning in the Sunday paper, I would go through the stock list. That's yep. the only time I would see the prices. <laughs> you know, when I was like 10, 12 years old, I was fascinated with the prices. And once a week, I would see how everything changed same, from the same. previous week. And same thing when I used to watch baseball games, for example, like, you know, you missed the baseball game. There were no highlights. There was no ESPN. I had to box wait for score. the newspaper the next morning to, to get the box score, right? To see who won, to see what the statistics were. It was fine. Absolutely. Perfectly happy. And sorry, Jason, you'll get you'll get in in a second. But to that point, I mean, I used to be editor of a, a newsletter called Inflation Survival Letter. It then became Personal Finance, and this is back in the in the early '80s. And we did a survey of, of our audience. It was a two bi week, bi monthly. It came out, you know, every two weeks, and it was printed. So I mean, and mailed. So by the time people got it, it was probably ten days after we printed it. Do you know what the most popular, the most popular feature in that newsletter was in that survey? The most popular feature was a little box where we put the price of gold, the price of the German mark, that dates me, right? The German mark and the price of a Japanese yen and the price of silver. That was the most popular feature. 
Well, when you're getting your prices on gold from a bi-monthly magazine that's already 10 days late by the time you get it, you have to be a long-term investor, right? Did you have the price of Bitcoin in there? It was kind of the original price, a, a, a tenth of a penny at the time. Uh, <laughs> updates, updates twice a month. <laughs> Jason? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's funny because I, I, when, and I, I have a lot of old stories too because it, I'm, 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 uh, I'm in my late 40s. And so right, we can talk about the, the Pony Express days. And you know, meanwhile, these, these young kids with no experience are doing option straddles which is a, which is a, you know, it's a, a terrible thought. Uh, but you know, just to do one correction, Steve, uh, like Mastercard went public in two thousand six, and I remember it because I actually bought shares, which I continue oh, to hold. Oh six, oh six, two thousand six on June twenty first, June twenty first, two thousand six. I bought a thousand fifty shares for uh, like a corporate account, uh, at, and now it's a split adjusted price of four dollars and fifty six cents. So that's that's almost 15 years, and you can just see the the in this example the magic of, of holding a stock long term, tax deferred, you know, all those years, uh, and you know now we're practically getting you know tremendous dividend yields just on that off that original basis, right? Um, and of course, tremendous appreciation too. So I will say though that part of the 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 and it's a little bit of luck, right? Because 2006. Was really the beginning of like value at that time had you know taken off in 2000, 2006. It was probably the low for growth stocks are getting close, and so it's it's sometimes difficult uh, when you have these major transition points and a particular sector or, or approach gets overvalued, right? Uh, so if if you were investing in stocks, you know value stocks in 2000 uh, or, or growth stocks, let's say in, in two, uh, 1999, 2000 terribly difficult to hold them all the way to the present time. So it's a little bit, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of luck that comes into it. You know, you get into a great stock at the right time at the beginning of, of really a, a, an inflection point in the market it can really be beneficial. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, look, you knew, I mean, first of all, congratulations, Jason, <laughs> for, for the purchase. And, uh, uh, you know, whoever, whatever corporate account that you did it for, hopefully they still hold it. It's, it's my corporate account. So don't or worry corporate about account. it. There you go. <laughs> all right. And, but, you know, that idea, you made a, you, you made a great point about the mindset that you said, look, split adjusted to today, it's foreign change, right? And what's the dividend today per share? You know, and and that's if you think about it in that way, and what that return is on the original investment. What's right. the yield on the original investment? And forget about what it's at today, or what it was at a year ago, what it was at two years ago. Look at look back to the original investment, and and what you know, what yield are you getting right. <laughs> currently with you know virtually a, you know, there's probably very very low risk that's going to be cut anytime soon and it's going to grow every year right so right. um and that's how the guy that i worked for that i advised who owned balcom had that same mentality you know he would base it off of that original purchase price and then he would determine um both kind of the internal yield of internal reinvestment and the external yield based on the dividend 
And that's how he actually calculated the return, not how it did, not how the stock price did last year or not. He would look at the actual fundamental financials and say, look, they're throwing off this much cash. This is my cash on cash yield. This much is being returned to us through dividends as investors. And this much is being reinvested in the business. If the business is profitably reinvesting it, it's going to grow uh, going forward. And, and that's a much, much different mindset than investors have today when they anchor to the stock price. Yeah, it's, it's difficult though, because I mean, it's, it's interesting. In the great stocks, you can look at the chart and you see these small blips in the past that at the time seemed like a tremendous threat. I mean, I remember like MasterCard, we could talk about the whole Durbin Amendment in 2010, right? Everybody got scared, like, oh my God, you know, uh, the swipe fees, you know, these MasterCard Visa, these oligopolies are going to be decimated. And of course, you look back at it, you, you know, you think back of it, you said, you know what? So what? Nothing happened. And I like to joke about MasterCard is that the easiest stock in the world to do, you know, your, your, your quarterly check. You just open up your wallet or your digital wallet, see that the card is still in there, and then you close it and you're done, right? On to the next quarter. That's all you have to do. So that's one of the, one of the benefits of, of these great companies is that really, you, you know, you really don't have to do as much work uh, just to stay up on it. As, as you do with you know, researching some of these tiny little companies that you, you, know, you go in and out of and trade around. And to me, frankly, it's a lot more, for me as a manager, it's a lot more satisfying to look at the portfolios that we own for clients and say, oh my gosh, I've owned that for 10 years. I've owned that for 20 years. That's a lot more satisfying for me, frankly, than it is you know, to say, oh, look what Ajax Exploration did last week or something like that. Um, but you, you mentioned a really key word, Jason, just then, and I know we all, we all agree, but you mentioned company, because we've been talking about stocks. You mentioned company, and obviously, if you're going to hold a stock for a long, long time, you're, you're, you're an, you have to think as an owner of a company, not as a shareholder, and it has to be a great company, not just a great stock price, a great stock. Um, but that's an obvious point, but I, I'm glad you mentioned companies. How do you distinguish that, right? And, and that's the challenge because you could own you know, some companies, you could own a number of different companies over the long term and, and uh, on average do worse than the, than, than the market itself. And, and that's where though, when you're analyzing it, you have to have that long-term growth potential based on high returns of invested capital. And so when you're looking at companies now that maybe over the last well, when not us, but when other people are looking at stocks that maybe have done well over the past five, seven, 10 years, think of like a Tesla, right? It's impossible to calculate that. So the stock has done well, the company is not one that you could own on the basis of that, that kind of long-term reinvestment opportunity and some sort of predictability then based off of that in the stock price. And so, you know, this is where Buffett talks about, look, most of these companies are simply uninvestable. You know, there's nothing you can do about it because you cannot calculate that or feel any sort of level of comfort based on the results, the financial results themselves. You know, one of the things I do, and it, I, I, maybe other people do it subconsciously or whatever, it might be helpful. But I mean, I, I differentiate in our portfolios. It's on a continuum, of course, but I differentiate between the core holdings of one end and, you know, the short term speculations on the other end. Now, I'll be honest, when I first invest in a company, I know if it's going to be a, well, I know if I intend it to be a short-term speculation or a longer-term holding, but when I first invest, I have no idea that I'm gonna hold something for 30, 
years or, or more even. <laughs> and and Robert's, Robert's laughing, but you know, I've got stocks that I first bought in 1985, but we still um, uh, Stocks older than me. What? Stocks older than me. That, that was an unnecessary comment, Bobby. Unnecessary. Stocks like 19. I'm just curious what. What what stock, if you, if you don't mind, and, and by the way, I just want to mention, I do you know that MasterCard I do own and some of these other stocks I'll mention I do own today. Uh, but Adrian, what, what stock is that from 1985 that you- well, I'll tell you, but I, I hate to do this. Can I first of all make a disclaimer? So clearly no stock that I mentioned today should in any way, should you infer any performance for our managed accounts. Um, nor should you infer that I like the stock if I mention it and say we've held it for 35 years. <laughs> I mean, come on, let's be honest. If I'm recommending a stock to an audience and I say I've held it 30 years, isn't it pretty obvious that I like it? But anyway, so nothing I like and nothing has anything to do with performance. You just happen to own it for 30-something years, but you have no, no, no real no opinion. Adrian's all circuits and wires, okay? <laughs> so this particular stock was Franco Nevada, which is a gold company, gold royalty company. And I mean, I think that's a good illustration, actually. If I may talk for a minute or two, that's a good illustration. And then I'll try and be quiet. You know, when, when we first bought, when I first bought that, it was based purely on management. Two people, Seymour Schulich and Pierre Lassonde, two of the smartest people in the, in the resource business. It was based purely on management. They took us out to see some property they had called Hasbrook Hill and we stood on the top of the hill and we looked at all the other gold mines around and we said, oh, this is going to be good. Well, the truth is Hasbrook still isn't in production and it's a piece of you know what, and they've changed the business model and, and et cetera, et cetera. But the key is the investment was made on the basis of people. Now at that point, I didn't dream I would hold it as long as I did. And, and full disclosure, I mean, for people who know, of course I know that they sold themselves to Newmont or merged with Newmont. And then subsequently they were spun out from Newmont again. So it wasn't a continuous holding, if you look. there was a gap in the middle. But, um, but as, as, they, as they developed their business plan and as things changed, then you started to have more confidence, I started to have more confidence in the company, said, oh, we're gonna hold this a long time. And maybe after you know, five or 10 years, the realization came that this was a really special company, in addition to the great people, this is a really special company with a great business plan. Let's, let's look at the history. Let's look at the revenue and the revenue growth. And so it developed into a core holding. Um, but it certainly, I certainly didn't say in 1985, oh, this is going to be a core holding. I think that's a key point, you know, that, that a lot of these stocks develop into core holdings, right? You cannot, I mean, all of us, I mean, we like to think of ourselves as smart, and like to think that we can predict the future, but really we have very, Bobby's saying no, but uh, uh, we like to think that we can predict a little bit, but really no one can predict 15 years into the future. It's just too difficult, right? So it's just, it's a, it's a constant process of a, of, a, of a stock rewarding you and a company rewarding you with good, good management, good results, and, and also good uh, reinvestment 
opportunities, right? That you continue to see that keeps you in the game. Yeah, Jason, Jason, you bring up a good point because it's even something that I I try and think about. You know, setting up Roth IRA accounts. You know, wanting to you know go and get a couple stocks that you know I I genuinely want to hold for a long, very long period of time, and it it becomes overwhelming when you think to yourself like, oh, especially when I'm thinking about Roth IRA. You know, you penalize before 59 if you try and take it, you know, to, uh, to, to take the withdrawal, you know, so you really are and at 32, like I'm genuinely thinking about, okay, I want to hold something for 25, 30 years, because I'm not going to want to withdraw it at that point. Um, I mean, there'll be buying and selling probably within, within that, of course, but let's just using that as an example. It's almost overwhelming to think to yourself, like even, even a company like Berkshire, you know, yeah, it's, it has a great infrastructure. Uh, you know, once the, that, that day comes and, and, you know, Buffett and Munger are no longer with us, you know, they've built a, a, a platform, a, a structure in order to, so for it to continue to keep going, you know, for 10, 20, 30 more years. But at the same time, you never know. And it's just that it, it, it's that it, it's almost overwhelming to then think about like, all right, I want to look at this for beyond for that long of time, but it's just, it's so hard to wrap your head around when you, know, you think about how much things change so exponentially. I think, I think you need to meditate, Bobby, and try to live in the moment and have <laughs> presence more for the, the current, you know, and, you know, don't, don't live in the future, live in the now, because that anxiety is causing you uh, self-doubt. <laughs> on your current decisions about the results of the, you know, the current results of the company. So I, I think maybe, <laughs> maybe if you got like a guru or something like that, you went on a little, this is what I do. This, this is, you guys reset. think this is a show. This is my therapy session. Okay. This is my investing <laughs> therapy sessions to make I sure mean, it's that a I'm little, not doing dumb shit. Yeah. It's a little bit of a joke, but I think it's actually true too. I mean, yeah. you're looking at the results here. You're looking at the predictability from the previous results over a certain time period. Uh, you think it's reasonably priced you know, stocks are easily priced compared to the financial results. Um, and you have confidence that management can continue it and that the business profile can continue. Um, yeah, what's to worry about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. But I mean, but it, it, comes, it comes back to the point of like, just, you know, we talk about this a lot with microcap investing, right? Where we wanna find, we wanna find a quality business. It's about management as, as Adrian has talked about, Jason, Steve, you guys talked about, you know, many times on, on this show and others, you know, so it's, it's just trying to develop that conviction to hold. And, and maybe it's a mental model that you build for yourself. We're like, okay, I wanna hold this. I'm looking for companies that I can hold for a minimum five years and then kind of go from there, right? That, that's something that I thought about a lot. I know Jason's thought about this with, quite a bit. With, with micro caps and, and, and maybe, you know, it, it's easier to talk in like five-year holds rather than 10 years, 15 years, because it's the, the you know, the, get further and further into the future, which is too difficult to predict. Uh, you know, like the management team quality is, is, comes before like the quality of results in many times in a micro cap, right? You got the right team, they come together, they start to show results. They're still maybe losing money. They may not be really having that much operating leverage, even if they're making money, it takes, it takes time. So you know, with all investing, right, it requires patience, right? You have to give a team, a company time really to show you results. And I think that's like the word, I hate, I mean, we're going back to our Pony Express, like, you know, uh, my, in my day, people had patience, <laughs> but really, you know, you, you need that. You have to be able to, uh, you know, just, just give the goddamn people some time, you know, and people <laughs> don't do that. 
They, they like, oh, one quarter, you know, uh, they blew it. And then boom, you know, they, they knock it out. And, you know, and, and we see time and time again with behavioral economics, when people knock something out of their portfolio, even if it's a great company, and then it goes up a little bit more, the psychic pain is too big. They won't buy back in at a higher price and they miss this tremendous run up. And you see that time and time again. Uh, and that's why in some ways, if you can resist from selling the promising company or the great company, you do yourself a load of good. Yeah, I'd like to really, really emphasize that if I may. The, I think the biggest mistakes I've made in my investing career are not buying the wrong thing or holding it too long. The biggest mistakes I've made are trying to be too clever and sell something that I really like because it's a little bit overvalued. Because you, I won't say you never buy them back, but you rarely buy them back. Um, so if, if you have a, if you have a core holding, you might trade around the edges by all means, you know, trim positions, buy more and so on, but a core holding, if I really like the company, I will never, never, never sell it with the intention, but I'm definitely going to buy it back. I just, it, because it just doesn't happen. I found. What do you guys think is harder? Um, finding that company that you want to invest in, let's just even say on the smaller long-term scale for five years, or then holding it beyond that five years that you had originally intended. I think holding it is harder, you know, and, and I mean, you've just proven it, uh, Bobby, talking about your, uh, you know, uh, how do you make that decision, right? And like, you're worried about all these things in the future and everything like that. And I think you have to create a strategy beforehand, like Adrian you know, had said, and I would even try to make it as mechanical as possible to say, I don't like to do this, but let's say, you know, it goes up a certain percent, you, you're, you're going to trim it or whatever. It goes down a certain percent, you'll add a little bit more. Um, you won't make any rash decisions based on quarterly results. You know, maybe you have to tell yourself, I'm not going to buy or sell until, you know, we get two years of unhappiness or something like that with, uh, with the strategy. Um, I mean, the companies are out there and you know what industries uh, generally can perform well, um, you know, based on historical financial results and the cusp of, of, of things like that. I mean, look, the MasterCard, Visa, American Express, buy all three. They're all going to, you know, they all have high returns on capital, right? Uh, and invested capital. Buy all three, buy one of them, whatever. Commit yourself to that mechanical buy and sell process if you want to hold it for at least five years. But if you're just looking at the daily price, if you don't have, if you haven't thought about this beforehand, your emotions are going to get the best of you. And, you know, it's going to double and you're going to say, great, you know, like, well, how can it double again? <laughs> and you'll, you'll create these, these doubts, but it can, it can. So I, I think, uh, look, we could probably, even amongst the four of us here, and, and, and don't, don't downround yourself, Bobby, because you can do this too. Uh, we could find 10 great companies <laughs> at reasonable prices today. And if we were able to make that commitment to hold those for the next five years in a mechanical way, we'll do really well. Everybody listening right now is like, okay, can you guys do that right now? Then give, give <laughs> MasterCard. What the fuck those names? <laughs> yeah, what were those names? <laughs> I, I, didn't hear. I, got, I got my notepad here. What are those yeah, names? Well, yeah, tell me one more time. <laughs> look, Bank well, of America. Let me just say what, you know? Let me just look, say one thing. Ultrila. <laughs> That's four of them right there. <laughs> one of the things I think, one of the most dangerous words, like little phrases that I, I hear people say is, is always like, you know, I sold after I updated my model. 
And a lot of times updating the model doesn't mean improving the model. And people tend to update their model right after the earnings comes out. And, and believe it or not, they still have some kind of emotional bias, especially if there's some kind of negative shock and they way over, over change the, the inputs in their model and suddenly the stock they held on for four years and loved up until the you know, day before yesterday, now it looks like crap, right? So sometimes, you know, if you hold a stock, you know, yes, and you're surprised by a negative result, you don't have to update that model that moment and, and, and act at, at that exact moment to dump it out of your portfolio. And if you feel like you have to sell, just trim it and wait another day or two and see how it feels and see how you feel. Uh, people are way too quick to make dramatic changes. Uh, and and I, I don't, and then they always, you know, I, I talk to them like a year and a half. We all have stocks, like right? we hold. And people, if I, it got done well, and they're like, and people just keep getting off the train at much lower prices. And you always wonder, like, why did you get off? Says, so, well, they had a bad quarter. But you held it on for it for six years. I mean, through, through all sorts of thick and thin, why that particular quarter? And something just stuck in their mind and they got off the train and they never get back on. And yeah. I, it's, it's, you know, certain habits, like just waiting until like, wait a day if you wanna dump something, really are just powerful helpers to really just staying long-term invested in the name. I'm sorry, I'm going on a little bit here, but. No, no, that's true. But again, for me, it helps to differentiate where they are in a continuum. Because if I've got a short-term speculation, let's say it's a gold mining company and the drill hole wasn't what I was expecting, I should get out and I should get out immediately because the reason I bought it, good drill results, didn't happen. But if I own Frank and Nevada or Nestle or some of these other com companies we're talking about, you know, with Nestle, I'm not looking for did their carnation sales go down by 1% this quarter. You know, I don't even look at that, frankly. It's the relevancy. Maybe they don't own carnation anymore. I don't know. But... You know, so I think there's a different, a, a totally different response is appropriate to to why you're holding a stock and what expectation you have. But I'd like to, Jason asked whether, I mean, Jason, Robert asked, Bobby asked whether it was more difficult to find the good companies or, or to hold them. I, I honestly don't think holding them is so difficult. Because if you've already made, for me, the way I look at it, if, if I've already made the decision that this is a core holding, I've got to have a very, very, very compelling reason to get rid of my Nestle, which was the very first stock I bought when I opened my money management business in 1991. I've got to have a reason to do it. And a quarterly miss is not the reason. It's got to be a fundamental reason. So I'm not saying that couldn't happen because HSBC used to be a core holding for me. Let's see, I own that one since 1976 when it was only listed in Hong Kong and they were paying 33% dividends a year. Um, no jokes, so, Bobby, no jokes about what? that. <laughs> no so jokes about 1976. core holding that you sell and you turn your back on, no question, you can have that. But I mean, you've got to have, to me, I've got to have a, a, a really powerful reason to want to sell one of these stocks because Buffett, I think, has mentioned, you know, when you sell three bad things happen. Well, he used to say this, one of them was you pay the broker commission, I, that doesn't apply anymore. But um, you certainly have to pay taxes 
uh, and you have to find somewhere better to put the money. And, you know, the truth is, if you've got one of these great companies that you've held for many years, you don't want to pay the taxes and um, unless you live in Puerto Rico. And can you find something better is the question. Right. I, I will say one thing. I, I didn't hold the stock very long, but I did own, and this is a name, uh, Adrian and Steve, you probably recognize, but some of the younger listeners may not, a company called Washington Mutual. Uh, and it did spectacularly well for, for many, many, many years and then blew up, right? I mean, really dramatically. And so I, I don't want to emphasize, I, I do want to emphasize, you got to make sure that the company is still, I mean, Nestle is still Nestle. Nestle of, like, in the 1970s, still Nestle in 2020. But you know, sometimes there can be underlying changes in a business. And even if you're not watching the company on a daily basis or even a quarterly basis, you have to watch out if, if there's new risks being introduced that, that could really expose yourself. Uh, and, and particularly if you're holding a company for a very long pe period of time and you have a very long cost basis, sometimes you become a very large percentage of your portfolio. So uh, just because you hold a company for a long time, you still got to watch it. And, and there's a lot of Washington Mutual investors out there who really screwed up their retirement, I would think, uh, because well, they, they weren't paying close enough attention. Sometimes these changes aren't immediately apparent to what we'll call the headline. You know, you don't see the earnings change. You don't see the dividend change. You know, as you say, you've got to look a little bit deeper to see, well, something is happening at this company that I don't like. And eventually it's going to affect earnings, reported earnings. Eventually it's going to affect the dividend, et cetera. Yeah, you're right. Right. And I'll just so, do another, another. sorry, Steve, uh, just to cut you off. I, I used to own like uh, Big Mo, right? Philip Morris back in the day. And, and I bought some in 1999 and I was expecting to hold on for a long time. But honestly, I, I changed. Uh, and you can do that too. It's not just the company changing. You can change. You say, you know what? I'm, I'm more and more I learn out about tobacco and more I get older and have kids. I don't feel com uh, comfortable holding a company that sells these kinds of things. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of things that go on to like whether or not you hold a company for a long period of time. And I know there's a lot of people who love Philip Morris, love the tobacco, you know, investing. Uh, but it's just not something, it's something that I develop more discomfort with. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons why some of these long-term holdings can disappear from your portfolio. Yeah, and that's perfectly fine. And in fact, I, I owned Washington Mutual after the bankruptcy when it was the NOL shell for a few years. So going back to that. Um, but I, I think, you know, to your point about um, Philip Morris, Altria, these types of things, you know, you can look at those financials and the characteristics and you see why it would, would be an attractive compounder. Right. Yes. You might not want to own it for personal reasons or moral reasons or, you know, things like that. And also you do have to consider the regulatory risk and and uh, and and uh, and all of that. Um, but, you know, when you if you want to, I guess, you know, viewers, listeners here, if they want to know what companies have the ability to compound over that time period. Look at the financials of Philip Morris in 1999. Look at the, the, uh, the return on invested capital there. Look at the balance sheet, just solely from the financial perspective. Look at the financial statements and try, try to find a company today that has that. And then of course, you, know, you wanna find the qualitative predictability from that as well. But if, if you look back at 10 years of uh, financials for most of these companies, 
you know, you can find ones that are, that are, are, you know, you can have some predictability to own for the next 10 years. Now to the point about Washington mutual there too. Um, I mean, you do have to look at risks top down. And when you have the economy um, with what was happening during that time period in the housing market, uh, you know, you might not need to read the, spend more than five, 10 hours of a quarter on the, on the financials and the update, but you, you do need to have some sort of perspective uh, on the overall economy and the direction it's going, because, you know, we have technological advancement and there also are these major risks in the economy that will cause uh, issues for some of these, you know, companies that might've been, might've been doing well for a certain time period. So you got to layer on that risk perspective, I think. But I mean, I think to me, but one of the great things about these ultra long holdings that, that you say is that they tend to do well in any environment. That doesn't mean they don't have risks and they're not, you, you know, they're not affected by the economy and by interest rates and by regulatory and so on and so forth. But, you know, again, to look at a company like Franco Nevada, it's a gold mining company, and yet it has been pretty consistent even in the period from 2012 to 2015, when the XAU, the index of senior gold stocks, fell about 86%, um, they still continued to increase their revenue, to increase their cash flow, um, et cetera. I mean, this isn't a lecture on Franco Nevada, but the point, it, the point I'm making is that, you know, the best companies are companies on, uh, uh, even if they're cyclical, they're companies that can do well throughout the whole course of the cycle, which I guess means they're not cyclical. Yeah, I mean, I, I own, uh, let's see, I, I was just looking at my portfolio to see which stocks I own for more than like 10 years, right? And so I got five. I got American Express, uh, CME, I, I still call it Chicago Mercantile Exchange, uh, Internet, inter, you know, inter, uh, ICE, right, Inter, uh, International Continental, uh, MasterCard, Visa, right? All companies that have reinvestment opportunities, but more also more important perhaps is that it's very difficult to compete with them, right? And sometimes we should also look at the, the absence of competition. How is a company doing, you know, versus the competition? Can you take away their business? And uh, most of the great opportunities, it's very tough to take away. Once they grab market share, once they grab a piece of business, it's extremely difficult to take it away from them. Uh, and that's something to sort of watch for, for any kind of company actually. But if you're thinking about holding on something for a long term, like you know, once they grab, once they get their fingers into something, right? Do they let go or not? Uh, so that's, that's something, that's always a question I like to ask when thinking about something long term. Right, yeah, I mean, one thing that you guys have brought up quite a bit here is this idea of you know, being open to changing your thesis. And, and that, because whether you like it or not, your thesis, especially if you're going to hold it for more than five years, that original thesis probably will change. You know, I mean, you guys are talking, Nestle, all these different companies, you know, they, they, they've been around for so long that the original reason why you probably invested in them has changed dramatically or not. You know, I mean, Nestle has probably the same corporate culture as it has for years. But I mean, there could be other reasons why that that thesis has changed over the years. So, I mean, do you guys have examples of times when you've had some of these core holdings and because the thesis changed, you then decided, you know what, the thesis changed, but that's okay. I'm still, I'm still gonna stick around. Cause it's pretty easy to make the argument, okay, the thesis changed and now, 
and, and something might happen. The risk profile is much higher. I'm probably going to sell, you know, but, it, but we never really talk about if the thesis changed, but you kept holding because something about that was attractive. So do you guys have examples of, of that happening in your careers? I mean, I, I, I so you know, go ahead, go ahead, Adrian. I've, I've got something to follow on to you, but yours is a little bit better. No, off to you. I mean, I, I usually get into a company that has some sort of mispricing or misunderstanding based on kind of balance sheet characteristics. And so uh, essentially I'm looking for that transition, you know, so I have no guarantee that it, it, it's a company I'm going to want to hold for five to 10 years, but getting into it, I would like for that to happen. And then it's kind of like, did everything materialize in the way that I wanted to, did they make that transition uh, to, you know, the cash flow? Um, uh, uh, characteristics that I, I require over time. Um, so, so I think I, most of my investments are like that probably. Um, and I, I cut the cord if they're not able to make that transition. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I, I can, that I agree with your, uh, you know, the basis for your question, Bobby, for me. Good. Well, for me, one of the, one of the most important, important criteria or criterion for selling is if a company deviates from its business plan. Not so much that it misses. I mean, obviously you don't want a company that continually doesn't execute, but you know, if a company is meant to be a, you know, whatever, a copper company and, or, you know, a gold company and becomes a marijuana company because they discovered that they could grow marijuana on their gold property. I, you know, that's a good reason for me to sell. That doesn't mean I can't get back into it. Um, and, you know, of course, companies evolve and change, but is the fundamental, the, the real core of why you're holding this company for a long period of time, does that remain true? That to me is the is the essential thing, um, you know. But if if uh, whatever if Nestle you know announced that uh, they were buying, I don't know whatever, um, that would be a, a reason <laughs> to look long and hard. But you know, I mean, anytime you have a company for a long period of time, there's probably three or four central criteria, central factors why you love that company. Uh, actually, that's not a good thing to do. You should never fall in love with a company. But why you're holding that company? And if they change one of them, uh, maybe that's fine because you look and you say, well, the other three things are still, are still the reason I bought for are still fine. But if a company changes completely, I'm more likely to sell than to continue to hold, to be honest. Got it. That was a good adjustment of my question. And I mean, I'll tell you a good, a good example. I mean, I think... HSBC is, is, or HSBC Holdings is a, used to be called Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, banking corporation is, is a great example because one of the things that, you know, management is key to me, management is central. And a company like HSBC always appointed, uh, you know, chairman, managing director, what we would call CEO, always hired them from within. And often they were people who had joined the company out of school at 16 in the mailroom and sort of, uh, and the reason that was critical was because they had, the corporate culture was ingrained into them. 
So one person couldn't make much of a difference because there was such a strong corporate culture. And if you'd been at the bank for 40 years, it didn't matter whether you went to Eton and Cambridge or whether you started in the mailroom, you had that culture. And I sold, and please don't, don't everybody send me nasty letters, but I sold when they started hiring a lot of hotshot American bankers who from Goldman Sachs, who had no experience of the HSBC culture. And what did happen after three, four years? The culture of the company changed. It was no longer the same culture, no longer the same investment. Can I throw shade, Bobby, at a very famous blogger, financial blogger, just a little bit of shade. Do you uh, mind? Uh-oh. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. You know, and actually, I enjoy his posts very much. But I think he goes and he's looking for like long-term investments. He's always looking for these, you know, stocks he can own for like 10 years, 15 years. But I don't like the way he goes about it. And I just want to offer it like, like value stock geek, right? Very famous guy. Doesn't get great results yet. Not to say that he won't in the future. Very open with his process. But he's constantly looking at these companies that have, they are, have been a great business to, to own for the past 20 years. But then, you know, surprise, surprise, in most markets, they're like very highly priced, right? And we do have to take into price into consideration, even for long-term, you know, for compounding. And do so we though? if you do have some talent, if you're growing your talent as an investor, uh, you know, sometimes if you want to own a stock for 10, 15 years, is to find the stock that's younger, that's building the, the, the true value at the beginning of, the, of this growth curve, rather than, you know, 15 years into it. Uh, and and I, I would ask that, that some of your more talented listeners, I'm sure every, every listener you have is talented, uh, is, to, is, is to consider looking at some of these younger, smaller companies that are, are transitioning to, to greatness rather than have achieved greatness for 15 years. I mean, I, just to push back on that comment, I mean, if let's say, let's say you do are able to develop that mindset of like, all right, I want to hold this company for 10 to 15, kind of like what Value Stock Geek has. Yeah. I mean, at, at a certain point, does price really matter if you see that it's gonna be a long-term core holding? that you, based on your metrics, will appreciate at whatever percentage you think it will for that 10 to 15 years. I, I, I does it matter? Someone else wanted, I, I can, I can, I, I think price, you know, maybe I'm, I'm too old school, but I still think price matters no matter what, when you, when you get into a stock. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, I'm just playing devil's no, I understand, I understand yeah. that. And, and it's, it's, you know, multiples, you also have to consider that, that multiple have, have expanded the number of growth stocks for years, right? And how much longer they, can that go? So even if you have a fantastic company with these, what, what Peter Lynch used to call stalwarts, right? Uh, and it's growing at five or 6%, a little bit above inflation. You cannot only bet on either expanding multiples or on, you know, further operating leverage. So in some ways, I think it's, it's, it's tougher to find them, but easier to hold them if you can find a, younger, a growth company uh, younger in its, in its life cycle. I think those in some ways make the best holds. In some ways, the easiest holds after you get through year two or three of holding it. Uh, easiest holds, but hard, hard, to, 
easiest to hold, but probably much harder to find too. Much right? harder to find. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But but by the way, you know what? By the way, just looking at these. If you want to spend all of your hours looking at 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 you know multi billion dollar companies that are that are you know quite expensive, it, those are very hard to find one you actually can put money into. So it's it's never easy, no matter what game you play. Sure. Yeah. No, it's all about doing the work. At the end, I mean. Listen, I'm 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 with you. I'm on the micro cap side, right? You know, I mean, yeah, it doesn't even be micro cap. It could be small cap. It could be mid cap. I'm just saying, you know, some of these mega caps that have done well over 15 years. You know, the uh, even if it is a Costco, I mean, it, it's tough. And I know he's he's actually not even going to buy Costco because because of the price. But in some ways, I'd, I'd rather see someone with talent spend their time looking for the next Costco rather than spending a few hours looking at the existing Costco. I, I'm a value investor. I'm never, Jason, I'm never going to say price doesn't matter. You know, I'm never going to say that. I don't think. But I will say that, you know, on my continuum, if you like to put it that way, I think the price matters less with the core holdings, the more they are to the left. And it matters extremely with the short term speculations. So, you know, if, if I'm buying a short-term speculation based on what I think might happen with their drill hole play or whatever, you know, I might buy it at 45, but I'm not going to pay 46. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm very, very disciplined on money. If I have a, on price, if I have a new investor and I'm not actually buying Nestle now, but I want to buy Nestle, eh, it's 98, it's 96. Eh, you know, it doesn't really matter quite so much. And certainly with regard to selling, you know, I'm not going to sell, if I expect to hold Nestle for the next 10 years, I'm not going to sell Nestle because it's moved a little bit above where I feel comfortable buying it. Um, you know, so I'm much more flexible on price. To me with the core holdings, the quality of the company is so much more important than the price. I didn't say price isn't important. Whereas with the speculations, I think price is, is definitely as important as what you're buying. Well, and the challenge, right, is like some of these companies in the late 90s, uh, like at Amazon, right, took 10 years to get back to the price it was previously, even though the company was doing very, very well. But the problem is, right, when it's 1999 or 2000 or something like that, before the crash, um, you know, you did not have kind of fundamentals. You did not have profits, cash flow, and things like that to point to. And so, I that's I, the ones that I think just go in the too hard pile, and you just miss them. You know, and maybe you pick it up in two thousand nine uh, or two thousand fifteen or something like that when you do have a little bit more predictability in those financial results. And it's okay to have those two hard piles. You know, if people look back and they think, well, if I would have owned, well, I would have only owned Apple. Apple you know, when uh, Steve Jobs first came back, well, why forget it? Don't kill yourself over that. You know, like it's a, there's no reason to beat yourself up because the characteristics at that time were not characteristics that were predictable enough, Absolutely. you know, to, to look fast forward 20, 30 years. Um, but those companies at some point did have that predictability. And, and, you know, then you can own them five, 10 years from then, even though it's already run up 50 times. <laughs> yeah, I made the same joke on an upcoming pod that I'm about to publish, but I'll say it first here. Uh, I think of myself as one of the best hindsight investors ever. Okay, I'm really, I'm really quite good at 
you know, finding companies that I should have owned, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, as I'm sure most of you were all, were all pretty talented at that as well. Um, so here's my final question before I, before we, 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 uh, we finish up here today. So I want you guys to make the case for why ultra long-term investing is not boring. And if it, it would, if you were to still consider it boring, why it's cool. Okay. <laughs> Let's make the case. What do you think? Well, I'll make the case right up the there bat. There you go. I think it was Jason, but we all know if, if you're in ultra long investing, once you've held it a certain number of years and once you're comfortable with the company, it takes a lot, lot less time to follow those companies. So long, ultra long term investing is a lot more fun because you have more time to do the things that you actually enjoy doing. Is that a good argument? Instead it's of being stuck argument. in front of a computer all day long. I think it's a great argument. I think you do it for the stories. Look, you say, well, look, I owned Apple, you know, when it was 50 cents. I owned, I owned MasterCard when it was split adjusted foreign change. You know, those are great stories. Yeah, I mean, if you want to be cool or you want to make money when it comes down to it, right? And and not to say like long, like ultra long-term investing is for everybody. Some people just don't have the personality, even if they try and study and they do Zen and they uh, meditate, they can't get around to it. But, but a lot of people can move more in that direction. And by the way, if you don't even have the mentality to try and invest for a long-term, I don't even know, what you, you may not even get there, but at least you want to hold things for the medium term. You know, it's about making improvements in your process uh, to, to try and grab more of those gains over, over time, and particularly in a, in a taxable account. Uh, and we didn't really focus too much on taxes, but, but you know, we all know that if you just go back and forth and, you know, trade in, in a taxable account, that's, that's no way to make money uh, for, the, for the long term. So, uh, you know, I, I think making money is lots of fun, you know. Um, I don't know about you guys, but, but that's, that's what pleases me. And I, I agree, Steve, you know, it's, it's nice to shift the little, you know, drop the MasterCards, you know, uh, 456 story, boom, right on the table there. And, you know, if you're with other investors, bam, you get their respect, man. You know, that's it. Instantaneous. You know, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And look, we're not here to poo-poo any other any other investing strategies. Look, as we, as we, I think we could all agree, making money is cool and fun. And if you're making money doing, you know, being a day trader, um, you know, medium term holder of some of these stocks, or you have two year time frames, power to you. It's all good. It's all gravy, baby. I mean, look, we're just, I, at, this, this is just something that, you know, as us, you know, 32 year olds with young children start thinking about when we're putting together our Roth IRAs of like, you know, I don't know if I want to, you know, just trying to put together a strategy or adjusting a strategy to that new, um, uh, that new lifestyle, right? Yeah. Well, you also have to say, okay, when you say uh, what makes it cool, right? That was your question. Yes. Uh, how do you make it cool? This long-term, ultra-long-term holding. Yeah. You how know, do we make it cool? That's the question. Yeah. Yeah. What circles are you playing in, though? You know, it's if you're. I mean, it's cool for us and hopefully the listeners to hear Jason. You know, owning buying NASCAR, the IPO. It's great. It's cool for us to hear Adrian having a position that he's had for thirty plus years. Um, 
you know, where are we at though? What cocktail party are we at here? Are we at a rave? And we say, well, I bought Berkshire in 1973, you know, <laughs> like no matter what we say, it's not going to be considered cool. Here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, like, I'm at like, you know, why is the music playing too loud, right? Yeah. I can't tell my MasterCard story. The music is too loud, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's cool for this circle. So let's, let's focus on our circle and maybe find so. a different circle instead of trying to make something cool that otherwise might not be considered cool in a different circle. Let's say we're the fish fish, right? Let's go. We're making, there. we're making right. this cool for Gen Zers. Okay. Let's make, let's make lo ultra long-term investing. Cool. Robin for Hooders. Gen okay. Yeah, it's not going to be, the story is not going to resonate with them. So let's go into a different right. uh, pool. I think, uh, I don't know. How do you, I guess maybe that's the fundamental question is the Robin hood traders, speculators, etc. Um, how, how do they have any appreciation? for this because you know what 20% a year not enough for them <laughs> you know what but I, but I don't know about you Steve but I started off like and I didn't didn't do it for a very long time but like looking at charts and doji stars and you know little triangles and things like that right and, and it just, omens and you know, all sorts of things and it didn't work uh you know so uh you know I, I hopefully there are some some young guys out there right if, if and maybe whatever you're doing working today it may not work tomorrow Right. And then, you know, look at, you know, in essence, look at the guys who've done well over time. Right. Always look at the old rich guys and then ask, how do they get rich and how do I get rich faster? Right. That's what every, every young person wants. Right? How do I get rich, you know, as rich as you, but much faster? Uh, and then, you know, maybe you'll pick up a little bit of of knowledge listening to us old geezers. I don't know. That's what I hope for. <laughs> I mean, one of the things is. You know, I think you're right. Some of these, some of these strategies simply don't appeal to certain types of people. I mean, I can say to somebody, look at Nestle. You know, yielding sometimes the yield is actually three percent. Um, and if you'd have bought that in 1980 and you'd have held it up to now, look how much money you'd have. And you could think about when you retire or you send your kids to college. I mean. People who are 20 years old aren't thinking about when they retire and something that yields 3% some years is just not appealing. And it doesn't matter how much to me, it doesn't matter how much math you show them, it just doesn't appeal to them. But truth is, I think, and you can do this with part of your portfolio if you like, but the truth is that if younger people, I mean, to me, the, 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 the normal paradigm is reversed. It's younger people who should be more conservative and focused on great companies that pay consistent dividends. And it's older people who should be speculating because when you're 75 years old, you've either got a bunch of money and you don't need any more so you can afford to have fun speculating or you have so little money that your only hope of survival is to, is to speculate. But when you're 20, that was meant to be a joke, when you're 20 years old, if you buy these great companies that are yielding three, four, five, six percent and just let them compound over 20 or 30 years, I guarantee you, you're going to do so much better than the vast majority of investors. And I'll just add one more thing, because as, as you develop that skill to, to invest in the great companies and hold them, you also sometimes get closer to, to building the necessary skill set to invest in, in soon to be great companies. Okay. And I, 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 I have to mention Expel because it's like earnings day, right? And I own a lot of Expel. Uh, uh, no, no, and there's you know, something like eight bucks right now, like today, right? And my average price in 2016 is a buck 24. 
So imagine the gains just from one day, right, that you can have from a stock if you hold on to it. But so many people don't hold on to them, right? You got to be, if you want to make the money, you got to hold on to the great companies. Uh, and you got to, you know, and if you really want the super great money, you got to buy them before they become great companies. But one way or the other, you got to hold on to it while it's great. So, so really, I mean, I, I'm just, I just, sometimes I'm just shocked that people just, you know, work on holding, not just finding, work on holding. You know, I think everybody listening that knows you, Jason, is like, wow, it only took an hour until the X-Bell Yeah, 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 yeah. Until the X-Bell yeah. mic drop. I, 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 I wanted to start it with the MasterCard <laughs> drop, and then I ended with the X-Bell yeah. drop, you know? And then you want to be cool. cool. You got you know, ready, to, ready to cash out. Yeah, bookend it like that. And I mean, look, what's what's cooler than making a shitload of money? <laughs> That's actually how you, that that is how you attract, you know, the, the uh, Robin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The group. I, exactly. You know, everything, and I hate to say it, but like, you know, if you look at like, like, uh, like uh, hold on poker, right? You need the Chris moneymaker. You need yeah. somebody who's done really well and somehow the personality and it just attracts the other players. Uh, some of which, and I, I, and I'm not Chris Moneymaker. I don't want to be Chris Moneymaker uh, of, of the microcap world. But you know, here I am, just a small businessman, right? And and following these tactics, really tremendous like financial security for like myself and really generations now. Like, yes, rub it in. I mean, five I, or six generations I mean, from now, based you know, maybe, on the maybe thinking about like future generations is like that's the most uncoolest thing to talk about with a Robin Hooder. But but you know what? I, I think it's, you know, when you have kids, you start thinking about their futures, right? Next so time, next time we have a podcast, you're on one of these podcasts, Jason, would you please wear your diamond encrusted thick necklace? So I everybody see. Can I need see. like the Mr. T diamond, all the, uh... <laughs> I mean, like thick, 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 and it's all diamonds. All diamonds, <laughs> diamond, diamonds. Only one percent of the show my hands because they're, the, my, my fists are all diamonds. That's right. <laughs> Oh my God, that was... that's from 1% of the gains, 1%. <laughs> oh man. Well, I think that's a great place to end it right there, Jen. So with that, where can everybody go and find more information about you, follow you on social media and stuff like that. So Jason, where can people go and find Diamond Hands? You can find Jason me on Hurst. Twitter at, at 8-Track1, at 8-Track180. You can find me on Microcap Club. Uh, at, uh, and you can just find me at Hudson215 Capital. That's, that's, that's where you can find me. I don't want to, I don't know what all those things are. I can give you my Pony Express address. <laughs> <laughs> no, our website, we do have a website, is um, adriandayassetmanagement.com. Very cool. Don't worry, we're going to get Adrian on social media at some point. We, hey, we did a lot for Kevin Shea and his social media following. So come on, right. jump, jump on. We can help. We can do a lot for you, Adrian. The program. That's right. And Steve. So, so I, uh, I'm going to give you a new one here. We're on Clubhouse. Yeah, uh, I just got that. Videos. On Clubhouse, we we started a club, uh, Willow Oak Funds. We're having uh, happy hours, virtual happy hours. Got one on Monday at four thirty p.m. Eastern time on Clubhouse. Uh, follow Willow Oak Funds. Follow Arquitos there, and then you can link out to all the other good stuff from there. So so check out Clubhouse. It's been a lot of fun. Nice. I'm excited to to check. That will be my second Clubhouse. I'll be honest. The first time I jumped on Clubhouse, I thought people could hear me. So I, I, I turned it off real quick. So I was like, oh, I had like a boomer millennial moment. You know what I mean? But uh, anyways, with that, gents, 
Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a lot of fun. I hope everybody listening got a lot out of this. Uh, you, again, my name is Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You can listen to every episode of the Investor Roundtable on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash SNN Wire, and the audio version on the Planet Microcap stream. Have a great weekend, everyone, and uh, see you next week. Thank you very much.